I want to take a moment to pray. And uh, we do this every once in a while, but if, if you feel especially burdened today because something is going on in your life or maybe someone else's life that you know about that's really weighing heavy on you, would you just stand right now? We would especially love to pray for you. Now, don't be shy. There's no shame. Just stand right where you're at, whether for you or for someone else. And then if you're near uh, somebody standing and you feel so led to come alongside them and just lay a hand on them to pray for them, you're welcome to do so right now at this time. And also feel free to reach out a hand towards someone near you too, just as a symbol of solidarity as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we cry out to you, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you know exactly what's going on in everyone's life today. That's how powerful you are. Lord, you command every square inch of dust in the universe. You uphold the universe by the breath of your mouth and your right hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. Lord, remind us of the kind of God you are this morning, that we sang about you are holy, holy and holy, Lord. There is none like you. I pray that our people this morning would realize that at a, a deeper and deeper level. And remind everyone here, especially those standing, how much you love them. That even if they walk through the valley of the shadow of death right now, they need not fear any evil for you are with them. Your rod and your staff comfort them. And Lord, your son knows what it's like to suffer and experience what many have experienced and are experiencing. He's faced ridicule and criticism and weakness and suffering. He's lost loved ones. He died himself. Lord, thank you that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, Lord. One who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Father, I pray that your son would intervene now in everyone's life here this morning. Lord, if there's healing that needs to happen, we pray in your name, your mighty name, in the name of Jesus Christ, that you would heal physically, spiritually, emotionally. Lord, heal relationships in this church that have been filled with conflict for years. Lord, heal them, we pray. Lord, I pray especially for those standing now. May they feel like you are coming alongside of them. May they literally feel lighter in their soul because you say in your word that we can cast all of our cares on you, knowing that you care for us, Lord. You invite us to do it, so help us to do that this morning. Father, thank you that you're a good God who loves us so much that you sent your own son for us so that we could be your sons and daughters. We love you so much, and we lift all these things up to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 3. Uh, beginning at verse 7. And if you look up on screen at the beginning of Judges, chapter 1, the Israelites are in the promised land. Under Joshua, they have conquered much of the promised land, but there's still a lot to be conquered. This green part is the part they have occupied so far, where there's a lot of surrounding part that's, I guess, I'm not an artist, but beige, maybe tan, that needs conquered yet. And so in Judges chapter 1, God calls the 12 tribes of Israel to go into the land and, and take the land. 
But does anyone remember what happened in Judges chapter one that was a big problem? You can participate. <laughs> what happened? They, they may have conquered the land to some degree, but what happened? They failed to do what? To drive out the nations. And this is gonna be a problem because these nations will influence Israel to follow other gods. And so we saw this last week in chapter two where it even said in Judges chapter two, verse 17, that they prostituted themselves to other gods. They committed a form of spiritual prostitution by serving and worshiping and loving other gods, which we do too. And then we get to chapter three, and now for the next several chapters, we're gonna see some unexpected ways that God moves, unexpected ways that God works. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book where it had a kind of an unexpected plot twist or movie ending? I remember in 1999 when the movie Sixth Sense came out, I was 15, and Bruce Willis, who plays the main therapist, is helping a little child who claims to see dead people and ghosts. And the twist at the end, not to give it away, is that Bruce Willis is dead. And I remember as a 15-year-old going, mind blown. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> or maybe you can remember even farther back when The Empire Strikes Back came out, part of the original really good Star Wars movies. <laughs> and when Darth Vader, what does Darth Vader reveal to Luke? I am your father. Oh, I was, I was reading a little bit about those actors. Apparently, when the, when the, the movie came out, not even all the actors in the film knew that. Luke did, Darth Vader did, the director did, and some of the editors, but no one else knew it. <laughs> or maybe you've seen the movie Frozen. Remember the twist in that movie? That Hans is a bad guy? Come on, Hans. <laughs> well, here in our text today, we're going to see some really unexpected twists. Not just this week, but next week. And in several weeks following, all through Judges, God likes to show off and work in really unexpected, unusual ways. So if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to start at verse 7 with Othniel. We saw this guy earlier in chapter one. So it says in verse seven, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. These are foreign pagan gods and goddesses. Verse eight, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And by the way, that name, Cushan, Rishathaim, means Cushan, Double wickedness. He's a doubly wicked king in their mind. And the king of Aram, Naharim, means the king of Aram. That's the region north, kind of north and east, what we saw on that map. But it means double river. So he's the double king of wickedness of the double rivers. It's almost like the Israelites came up with this name, you know, to try to cope. You know, oh, the, the double wicked king of the double rivers. Here he comes, you know. But this is who God sold them into during that time. Verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, that we saw in chapter one, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And then in verse 10, what comes on Othniel? It says, let's say it together, the spirit of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit that's poured out on Pentecost is active here in the Old Testament, coming on Othniel so that he became Israel's judge or leader and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And you can be seated for now. Let's talk about 
Othniel for a little bit and God's unexpected salvation. By the way, we see that cycle again in Judges that we talked about last week, how the people sin first, and then what happens? God gets angry, and then he delivers the people over into the hands of their enemies, and the people are subject to their enemies for several years until they finally cry out to God in their stubbornness, and then God raises up a judge who delivers them, and during the judge's life, they have peace and rest, and they seem to follow the Lord, at least for a time, and then the judge dies, and then what happens? The same thing again. The people forget God. We're going to see that in verse 12. So we see that cycle played out in five verses, and we're going to keep seeing that cycle and cycle as it gets worse and worse all through the book of Judges. But let's talk about God's unexpected salvation. I have two main points today. Number one, God works. God's unexpected salvation often comes, unexpectedly, of course, in the form of discipline, punishment, and judgment. God uses discipline, punishment, and judgment to bring about his salvation. And usually when we think of God working and delivering, we think of like verses nine and following when they cry out to God and God delivers them. He raises up a judge and a leader to help them. But if you look at the verses prior to that, if you go back to verse seven, back in verse seven, it says the Israelites did evil. They forgot the Lord. So in verse eight, the Lord gives them over. His anger burns against them, so he sold them. It's God doing this who sold them into the hands of this double wicked, double river king. So think about that for a moment. Was God loving? Was he being loving to give them over to their enemies? And the answer is yes. And you may say it may not feel loving, but, but God loves them so much that he allows them to feel the effect of their sin and give them over to their enemies so that they're finally to the breaking point where they have to cry out to God and depend on God and ask for God to deliver him. But it's only when they finally are oppressed and going through a difficult moment that they actually remember to do that. Because earlier in verse seven, they are forgetting the Lord. They're serving other gods. By the way, do we ever struggle with that too? When life is going well and, we're ser- and we start serving other gods, we forget the Lord too. But when, life, when, when, but when God gives us over to our gods and our idols, whatever it is, whether it's money or work or a person, whatever it is, we start to feel the effects of it. And finally, God wakes us up and gets our attention and says, wake up, Rick. See what you're doing. Return to me. <laughs> I mean, could it not be in your life if you are going through a hard time this morning if you are pursuing something else rather than God, and only you can answer this question by the Holy Spirit, if you are pursuing something else other than God, could, could God be trying to get your attention? Maybe you're, maybe you're even experiencing the effects of that choice, that putting that thing in place of God is, is causing all sorts of havoc to, 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 to wreak havoc in your life, to break out in your life. I mean, we often think of God's deliverance as something good, as you know, he's gonna deliver us with a judge, but here... A form of his deliverance is his punishment, his judgment, his justice, his wrath, because he loves us so much. Here's how one pastor put it. Even here in Yahweh's anger is hope for Israel, for his anger shows that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal and Asherah as unmolested. Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. God refuses to allow his people to be comfortable in sin. Did you hear that? Could it be this morning, if you're going through a hard time, that maybe God's trying to get your attention and saying, I'm refusing to allow you to be comfortable 
in your sin. And I want to be careful there because I'm not saying that all hard times in your life are, are God getting your attention necessarily. They're not necessarily disciplined like he's doing here. But, but even if you're going through a hard time, no matter what it is, could it not be God trying to get your attention? You know, I really do believe that God giving, over, giving them over to the hands of Cushan and Rishathaim is, is a blessing because it gets their attention. In fact, one of the worst things that can happen in your life is when God's like, you know what? You want to sin? You want that idol in your life? Here you go. You can have it. See how life turns out for you. Because if you read Romans 1 in the New Testament, look at what the language that Paul uses when the people are sinning. It says, therefore, in verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So he said, you know what? You want to do whatever you want to sexually? Do it. See how that works out for you. Verse 26, because of this, again, we see that God gave them over to shameful lust. And then verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So one of the worst things that God can do in your life is just say, that's one of his forms of judgment. Here you go. But when he intervenes like he does here with Christian Rishathayim, I just love saying that name, by the way. When he intervenes in that way, <laughs> He's getting our attention. So as you think about your life here this morning, could God be trying to get your attention with something you're going through? Whether it's a form of his discipline or maybe you're just going through a hard time. Look at what the book of Hebrews 12 says. It connects with this. The writer of Hebrews says this, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as what, it says? Discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And like I said, I want to be careful, not that every hardship is disciplined from God necessarily in your life, but the writer of Hebrews is like, you might as well endure it as a form of discipline, that God is working in your life. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his what? His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, amen, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So one of God's unexpected forms of salvation in the Israelites' life, in our life, is when he allows us to experience his judgment and his wrath and his punishment and his discipline so that he can get our attention because he loves us so much like a father would love their own son or daughter. So that's point number one. God's unexpected salvation often comes through hard times to get our attention. And we're going to see this all through the book of Judges. In fact, it's going to get really bad when the people don't cry out to God anymore. When they, when they can't be woken up anymore, that's when God just gives them over to it. Let's go to verse 12 where the story gets a little bit more interesting. And if you're able to, would you stand again for the reading of God's word? We're going to read about a character named Ehud. 
And it says in verse 12, we're going to see the second form of God's unexpected salvation here. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the cycle's continuing. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is actually the city of Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So if you look up on screen, that map I showed you earlier, that bottom right-hand corner is the region of Moab. So this is where King Eglon is from. And he got the nation to the north, the Ammonites. There's Ammon right to the right of the green to join him. And the Amalekites are southwest of that, not even on this map. These are all joining forces to attack the Israelites. Verse 15 says, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud. And what's it say about him? He's a left-handed man. Keep that in mind as we go. The son of Gera, the Benjamite, which ironically means son of my right hand, yet he's left-handed. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So do you see what's going on here? The Israelites picked Ehud, a left-handed man, to bring an offering and tribute to the king Eglon, who was oppressing him, oppressing the Israelites. And it says in verse 16, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, so that's about 12 to 18 inches long. He made it, it says, which he strapped to his what? His right thigh under his clothing, okay? And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. The Bible's really interesting. Keep that in mind too as we go. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. And it says in verse 19, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself, that's Ehud himself, went back to Eglon, the king of Moab, and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Ehud then approached him, the king, while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. We were talking about this as a music team this morning and this is like a junior high boy's delight, this kind of text, you know, this is, <laughs> the Bible is appealing to all audiences this morning, I guess, yeah. But it's really interesting. I mean, in fact, the NIV is very tame when it says his bowels discharged, because literally the Hebrew says the dung came out. That's, what, that's how the ESV translates it. This is what happened to this guy, this high and mighty Eglon. And then in verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said this, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. Now, why would they say that? Because his bowels had discharged. They smelled something coming from the room. Verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment. When's this guy gonna be done in the bathroom, they thought. <laughs> but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped 
to Sirah. You can be seated now. The Bible is full of a lot of humor in this, kind of irony, you know, that, that Eglon, this fat and mighty king, because being fat was kind of a sign that you would arrive, you had to do like labor, you know. It's kind of ironic that this fat, mighty king, the thing that undoes him is kind of his fatness, you know. And it's kind of ironic that Ehud, a left-handed man that nobody would suspect from literally the, the tribe of Benjamin, the son of my right hand, becomes the deliverer and the Messiah-type figure. In fact, Eglon, it, it talks about his fat. That same word is used to describe animal sacrifices in the Old Testament when, when they would give sacrifices. The fat was some of the best part. And, the, and the, the name Eglon means young calf. So Eglon becomes kind of a fattened calf who's sacrificed to the Lord. Well, let's keep going in verse 27. When he arrived there, so Ehud is going back to his buddies, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. And then there's one more lone verse. After Ehud came Shamgar, a new judge, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's a, a wooden pole with a metal tip to drive cattle. And he too saved Israel. Okay. <laughs> so what do we do with a text like this? Uh-huh. Well, I want to go back to this theme. God saves in unexpected ways. He uses a left-handed man. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to bring about his salvation. Let me say that again. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to bring about his salvation. I said in the, the title of the bulletin that God saves in left-handed ways. How many of you are left-handed this morning? Your whole, not just this morning, but your whole life too, of course, yeah. <laughs> that may not seem like a big deal to us, but there are still some cultures in the world, and even in biblical times, where being left-handed may not have been the, most, the best thing. I mean, sometimes it's referred to in the Bible as being an advantage in battle, but for the most part, I think this would have been looked down upon. It wasn't even that long ago where some of you remember where if you were left-handed, maybe your parents or grandparents had tried to break you of your left-handedness and got to use your right hand in school because that's not good to be left-handed or bat left-handed. Or think about what the Bible says. When the Bible talks about power, does it talk about left hand or right hand? Which one is it? It's the right hand. Because if you look up references in the Bible to right hand, you will find that they are all quite positive. God swears by his right hand. He has pleasures by his right hand. And his chosen one sits at his right hand. Why? Because most people were right-handed. The right hand was a symbol of power and ability. You fought with your sword with your right hand. But Judges 3, verse 15, when it's talking about his left-handedness, it literally says that he was bound in his right hand. So maybe he couldn't use it. Maybe he just wasn't as strong. Maybe it was deformed. We don't know. But either way, his dominant hand was his left hand. 
And this actually becomes an advantage for Ehud because he's able to bring this tribute to Eglon. I'm sure they must have checked him for weapons, but they didn't check his right thigh because they probably thought he's either right-handed or if he's handicapped, there's no way this guy can use a sword. They didn't check that. They would have checked his left thigh, if anything, because if he was right-handed, he would have pulled it there. But that weakness, that, that limitedness becomes a great asset to deliver the Israelites from the Moabites. Isn't that interesting? God uses somebody unexpected like Ehud in an unexpected way using his left-handedness, and he may have been handicapped, we're not sure, to bring about his salvation in a very real way to Israel. And I'm not saying that God endorsed everything that Ehud did. I mean, he was deceptive. He was a, you know, I have a message from God for you, pretty dramatic. But either way, God uses him. What the Bible reports, it doesn't always support, but God uses him to bring about his salvation. I want you to think about God's salvation all through the Bible. Who else are some unexpected characters that God uses to bring about his salvation all through scripture? Just shout them out. Gideon, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, what's that? Moses. Moses, yeah, who couldn't speak, was afraid of speaking. Who's that? Rahab, yeah. Samson. Yeah, we're going to see this pattern all through Judges of unexpected people that God uses. David, who's a shepherd boy. Mary, yep. The Virgin Mary, a young teenager when she was called by God. Saul, yep. Somebody said Moses. We heard in first service, Peter, so Moses couldn't speak. Peter spoke too much and got in trouble. The apostle Paul is another one who was a persecutor. I mean, God has a way of using very unexpected people, people like Jacob, who was a deceiver and a trickster, to bring about his salvation in very unexpected ways. And he continues that theme now with Ehud, the left-handed man that nobody expected. You know, as we think about Ehud, I couldn't help but think about Jesus too. Because think of all the characters that God uses, probably the most unexpected one is Jesus. In fact, even in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, look at what this says about Jesus in Isaiah 53. It says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. I mean, Jesus would not have been on the front of People magazine and part of the best good-looking men voted on, you know? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. I mean, think about Jesus and how he was born. Where was Jesus born? In a very unexpected place called Bethlehem, even though it was prophesied a small town, in a manger, an animal feeding trough. And then he grew up in Nazareth, a small town. And, and they said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Kind of like people saying that today. Can anything good come from Bern or Geneva or Jay County, wherever you're from? <laughs> Nobody expected Jesus to be the Messiah. Even though he displayed his power and his teaching with boldness and authority, the most amazing thing he did was in an act of weakness and surrender. When he gave his life on the cross, on the cross, Jesus gave up his life so that he who knew no sin could become sin for us, bearing the weight and wrath of God for sin in our place as our substitute. In that very moment, it was a weak moment to many, so Jesus did not seem like the Messiah, but for us, we know it was a very strong moment. 
What seemed like weakness was actually strength. What seemed like foolishness was actually wisdom. You see, God has a way all through scripture of using left-handed people, so to speak, like Ehud. Unexpected people to bring about his salvation and his deliverance. He does this so that he can save unexpected, undeserving people like you and me. He can save left-handed people like us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul talks about this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That's called by God for salvation. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he did this, why? So that no one may boast before him. You see, God has this pattern all through scripture of using left-handed people, left-handed saviors to save a left-handed people like us. So that at the end of the day, who gets the glory? God and his son, Jesus Christ, who sits at his right hand. I want you to bow your heads right now and close your eyes. I had you stand earlier if you're going through a rough time. I believe one of the things God wants to communicate to us this morning is that he is a faithful God. He's mighty to save. He has a way of saving and delivering us in unexpected ways through unexpected people. I want you to take a moment of silence and just think about that right now. How, How does God want to intervene in your life right now? Father, I thank you that you're this kind of God, how you use things like judgment and discipline to get our attention and and help us to cry out to you for salvation and deliverance. Thank you that you use unexpected people like Ehud and even Shamgar, a non-Israelite, to save your people, people that nobody would expect. Lord, I pray this morning, if people are going through a really hard time, Lord, you would remind them that you are the God who saves, you are the God who delivers. Lord, if you can work through a left-handed person that no one would expect, you can work in this situation. Lord, remind us too, if we feel like um, that life has just been rough, that we kind of walk with a limp, that life is difficult, Lord, I pray that you would use our weakness and what we view as weaknesses and and non-strengths as a strength for your glory and for your kingdom. Maybe it's a way for us to reach out to someone else in need. Maybe it's a way for us to depend on you more. Maybe it's a way for us to submit everything to you so that you get the glory and work in our weakness weakness and left-handedness, Lord. Father, I pray that you would remind us that you are so faithful. You are this kind of God who saves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.